tetragrammaton. Uh, let me tell you something. Yeah. I have, it's so weird. Maybe it was the inspiration for me calling you, but I have not, when I get into a thing with music, yeah. I just don't stop. This yeah. fucking Johnny Cash shit. I mean, Danny Boy. Yeah, yeah you fucking mind? I would have never thought of that. Yeah. You know when you hear something, you always, you, even today, I'm retired, all this yeah. shit. Pull it closer to you, pull it closer. Oh, yeah, just okay, go. I'm retired and stuff, but I say... Um, I wish I thought of that. You know what I mean? I didn't think of that. Johnny thought of that. Johnny thought of Danny Boy. No, I'm talking about Johnny. About Cash. Johnny. Yeah. I wish I thought of that. You know, it didn't. Like, it didn't happen in. A, it didn't happen in a normal way. Oh. I, I'll tell you the story if you want to hear. Yeah, I do. It was. I, I was not thinking about Johnny Cash. It was more of an experiment because I was a kid at the time. I produced a, a bunch of records fast, but only, you know, maybe doing it for five years, something yeah. like that. Not a long time. Yeah. And what year was it? I don't know. 80, probably a few years after I met you. I was thinking about when we first met, which is unbelievable to me. I was still in college when we met. We first met in Paul Schindler's office. Fuck. 37 years ago. And you may have been the first professional record producer I ever met. <laughs> he represented you. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah, and I can And I remember the conversation we had because it was a strange conversation. Oh, really? <laughs> I had just produced my first rock album uh, by a band called The Cult, band from England, and I produced that album. Yeah. And I was excited just because I'd never did that before. I'd yeah. already made some hip hop singles. I don't even know if I had any albums yet, just right. single hip hop stuff. And I played you a song. And I remember you said, I wish I could still do something that simple. Like it was so rudimentary because yeah. I didn't know anything. I just recorded the band. Well, you know, I didn't do anything. It's so funny you say that because when you get to a certain point producing records, I found you stop making the first albums. And you even if you make that first album, you produce it like it's their third. Yeah. It's just the innocence and the ignorance. And then and I how even powerful said, that ignorance and innocence is. Yes. It's so Yes. Yes. And you just you end up you have too much information. Yeah. You have too much you enter the studio and it's somebody's first album and you have too much information. Yeah. You're not all in the same place. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I know, because what I heard I yeah, I would have heard that and said, Yeah, I wish I could just stop. That's what that's what it was like. It was like <laughs> And, I'm, and it didn't make sense to me because you're a professional. I'm a kid in school. Right. I make this record not knowing anything. And your reaction was, yeah, I wish I could like do it like that. It's like, I'm sure you've done it like that. What do you mean? Like it, yeah. it didn't compute, but it's fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, 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 it's true though. I've always thought of that. I think about that now in my life where I just, Bob Seger had the best line ever. I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. Wow. That's a great <laughs> line. That says it all. Isn't that a great line? Yeah. I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know. Did then. you ever did you ever work with Seeger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, had yeah. no idea. Tell me about it. Yeah. Um, well, I got caught at a period of time where I came out to LA with Tom Petty 
in I came out first with John Lennon in 1973. And then I went to New York and st I lived in New York. So I went and I worked at the record plant on, you know, um, on Bruce and Patti Smith and, and, and a few things like that. And then I came out in 79 to do Damn It Torpedoes with Tom. And it worked, which we'll get into. I, I, when I rolled into Stevie Nicks, right? Because I, I, Damn It Torpedoes came out. Her label heard it. They liked it. She loved Tom Petty. All of it came together. And so I went in with her and that was cool. And then all of a sudden I became a California record producer. Wow. You know what I mean? Wow. Which was like, did you, did you have to decide to move out here or yeah. was it obvious once you were no, here, you once was going to stay? Was here, well, I can't move out here. I, I think for the same reason, most New Yorkers move and English move out here is the weather. Yeah. You know, I came out here in 1973 yeah. and I just, called my mother and said, how'd you get this wrong? Wow. You know, like wow. this is where we, you know. Yeah. It, it, just the quality of life. It's just, it was fucking December and it was like uh, 75 degrees. And Crazy. I'm like, holy shit. I asked the guy at the Beverly Hills Hotel because John put me up at this really ritzy hotel. I said, uh, do you have docks here? Because my dad was a longshoreman, right? I said, you have docks here? He goes, I got docks here. I got docks here. It's the biggest port in, in, New York, in America. I said, wow. So I called my mom. I said, how'd you get it wrong? <laughs> I do, you know, the fuck? I said, do regular people live here? That's, you know, the kind of question. Yeah. yeah. You know, you know you're yeah, from, do regular people live here? Yeah. You're from, yeah. You know what I'm talking of about. Of course. So I said, do regular people live here? He goes, absolutely. I'm a regular person. I live here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just ask the dumbest questions, but. So I did. Uh, and what happened? Because you only, you, you had a fantasy of California from seeing it on TV. Yeah. That's all we knew was yeah. like. When I was 17, yeah. we were programmed to only like the Stones and the Beatles and not the Beach Boys because they were from California. Wow. You know what I mean? That's interesting. So we had one guy on our street. I come from an Italian neighborhood named Carl Stuyvesant. And he had a Beach Boys album, but he also was the only guy on the street with blonde hair because he wasn't Italian. I see. I see. Right? I see. So Italians didn't like the Beach Boys. We like New York. We like the Stones yeah. and the Beatles and yeah. Vanilla Fudge. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Vanilla Fudge is incredible. You know? Vanilla Fudge And is Leslie incredible. West and Mountain, yeah. you know? That's the kind of shit and we like. And was Duop already done? Yeah, for me, Duop, my life started Ed Sullivan, the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. Ground Zero. Do you remember seeing it on no, TV? I remember sitting on my mother's blue shag carpet. You know, right in front of the RCA TV. How old were you probably? I was exactly how old I was. I was, uh, it was a month or six weeks before my 11th birthday. Wow. It was 63, right? Yeah, I think so. 63 or 64. If it was 64. So then it was 11 a, or 12 years old. Yeah, 11, 10 or 11. 10 or 11. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. But Little it, kid, you see this and it just blows your mind? And I begged for a guitar from the day after that. Wow. No, no, it more than blew our mind. It's shock. I was in grade school. And I remember going, I had a Catholic school with nuns. And I remember we all tried to comb our hair forward, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember I was a good kid in school. Yeah. You know, I would never look for trouble. Yeah. So we all did that. And the nuns said, you too, Jimmy? <laughs> James? Wow. I said, yeah, I'm a Beatles fan. You know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, then- What was it? Again, hard to know. I can't put myself there because I was later than you. Yeah. But when you saw it, 
What was so different about that than what had come before? Well, it was it was a shock of all things at once. First of all, it was a band playing the songs. Yeah, and like they, Elvis had a backup band. He, right. he wasn't a musician, he was a singer. These guys were singing. There was four of them. Yeah. And three of them were singing, yeah. and, and they all had these haircuts. Yeah. And it was like, how'd this land here? What is this? This was like nothing I've ever seen. And then you hear the hype before Murray the K, they're yeah. coming, they're coming, they're screaming, the girls are screaming. Then you see on the news, the Beatles land the Say Stadium. And wow. the frenzy was insane. And I remember singing it and just my mind exploded. And any friends of mine that are in music, including Springsteen, yeah. he talks about it all the time. You know, he was older than me because he's like... Uh, I think he's four years older than three, three years older than me. So he must have been 14. But it was, never, and by the way, I've been around a lot of shit since then. Never, nothing ever felt like that. Yeah. And it was all organic. It wasn't, there was no like um, big machine push behind it. No. You know, they, no. it was sort of out of the blue. It just happened. Yeah. They, they had trouble getting a record deal, as you yeah. know. And, it just, but when they landed on Ed Sullivan, man, they landed. And the world changed at that moment. It's it incredible. really was. It was. Remember, it was right after the Kennedy assassination, yeah, which was very fresh in our mind. So it must have been '64 because Kennedy got killed in '63. Yeah, it, it changed everything, and then you got Kennedy the just had just gotten killed, which was big, yeah. which was as big as that. Did everyone love Kennedy? Yeah. Well, my neighborhood, yeah. you know what I mean? And he was like, he was young, first time young president, cool, yeah. seemed cool. Yeah, he was the first president I paid attention to in my life, right? Yeah. So, you know, and it was, and he was young and he was, they had the, him and the wife, they were handsome, the little kids. Yeah. It was something that didn't look, you know, before him was Eisenhower. Yeah. Like a general, like a soldier, like who relates to that, right? Yeah. So, um, and then when he got killed, I remember being at school, it was, uh, so those two things happened at once. Where did you go to school? Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. Nice. In Brooklyn? <laughs> yeah. Nice. Everything was in Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your whole world was in Brooklyn. It, you know, um, there was, you know, Manhattan was the land of Oz. It was yeah. like every now and then you got to go there. Yeah. Like, you know, if your parents took you or you went, you know, not until I was 16 did I ever go to Manhattan for something of my own, 17 years old. And what were the kids like? What was the, tell me the the, the world. Tell me what the world, world was like then, yeah. It was all 100% Italian. Yep. It was uh, right by the Battery Tunnel in Brooklyn. Were most of the kids like parents, first generation? Yeah. There were some of the some of the parents, well, there was grandparents Italian. Yep. There were parents Italian. And then there were Italian kids yeah. that came over. Oh, cool. Right? Cool. So it was very, very, even in that, it was siloed. You know, yeah. it was the people from Calabria, the people from Naples. They were different. You know, my family was from Ischia, you know, and, and everybody kind of stayed together, you know, and, um, but they mixed somewhat, you know, but. Um, More than with anyone else, but not as much as with their yeah, own. Yeah, 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 with their own, you yeah. know, like. Uh, yeah. You know, like my grandmother would always say, of course he's Carl Ray's, you know, yeah. uh, would be like, yeah. of course he's like stubborn, you know yeah. what I mean? Uh, you know, uh, but but we all spent time together, but it was a really, 
very, very Italian, you know, fish hanging from the in the fish stores yeah. and church and Catholic and few Irish spread around here and there. Yeah. Right next to the projects in Red Hook. See, we were Red Hook when I was little, but then I was 16, it became Carroll Gardens. Mm-hmm. You know where that pizza place yeah, is, yeah. Locality, yeah, yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. So um I grew up one block from Macaulay's. Yeah. So, and it was real, real Italian, you know? And uh, so everything I Did knew- Did anyone Italian. speak Italian or no? We wouldn't speak Italian because if your grandmother tried to talk to you, the whole thing was about being American. Everybody wanted to be American. Absolutely. I see. If you spoke Italian, because even the kids that came over from Italy, yeah. they didn't hang out with the American Italians. They hung out in the espresso shop. I see. And the Italians hung out in the candy store. I see. And it was very, very, very different. Yeah. And it was, it, was, uh, it was like that. Yeah. It was very, very... For example, my grandfather made wine in the basement. I lived with my grandparents and my mother. And, my, right? and he used to want to give us wine for dinner. Like, I'm 13. Yeah. I would say, nope, Pepsi. Because you Brooklyn, were American. Because Brooklyn's Pepsi. Yeah. Brooklyn is Pepsi. Yeah. Brooklyn, you know, because they, it was the mob and they had the distribution and all that stuff, right? Could you, was the presence of the mob? Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God, absolutely. It was the Galler, the Galler gang was there, you know, they, it was, remember, this is the 60s. And were people afraid of them or tell me what was like, what well, was the vibe? Well, you know, you, you, you. You walked around very casually, like people do in their own neighborhoods in any rough yeah. neighborhood. But uh, you knew, and you knew who was yeah. who was a t- who was a tough guy and who wasn't. Yeah. You know who and was they connected. weren't really looking for trouble. They were yeah in my in my in my neighborhood. But but you know I didn't own a business or anything like that. But I'm sure there was stuff going on. You know what I mean? And you know they, they you just. Don't fuck with them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was uh, that kind of it was that kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And but you know, my dad knew some of the guys, you know, and stuff like that. My my best friend's uncle, actually, his backyard was connected to mine. Uh, it, it, he was uh, one of the Gallo guys, you know. And uh, yeah, there was right there. It was very very much right there. Mm-hmm. And at this time, when you're a kid, are there um, jukeboxes? Was that the, yeah, th- the thing of the culture? Absolutely. In the candy store. My my aunt was, it was the candy store, Lil and Dots. It was her candy store. We Great. used to all go in there. Little, little candy store. You fit 30 people, 30, squeezed in, and you play music, and you eat candy, you know, and soda, and, yeah. you know, things like that. But it was a candy store. Yeah. And uh, what would be on the jukebox? Give me an example of well, a again, playlist. Well, uh, again, we they had the older kids, which was my sister. Yep. So they had, do you want to dance and hold my, you know, they had, um, they had the contours and they mm-hmm. had the doo-wop, but they also had rock and roll, Elvis, right? Mm-hmm. And then they had, uh, in our generation, we had the Rascals and Vanilla Fudge. And then I remember when the Doors first single came out, you know, and that sounded incredible on the yeah. jukebox, right? Yeah. And I remember Hendrix's first record came yeah. out. I heard that on the jukebox. Everything was singles, yeah. you know? And then the album started, you know, but the, the album took off. We had albums in our family of Frank Sinatra. And, you know, first of all, you know, you grow up and that's all you hear is D. Martin and Frank Sinatra. Yeah. 
Not bad. No, no, no. I mean, nothing wrong no, with that. But that's what's going on all the time. It, it's always... That's if you came to my house, that's pretty much what you'd yeah, get now. Yeah, yeah. Frank Sinatra, you know, Dean Martin, uh, Bing Crosby. But Frank was really, really big, right? And uh, and Dean Martin. And, you know... You, and they were still young. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was 65, 66, yeah, yeah. right? And all the neighborhood, you know, the, there'd be a group of guys that would go to everybody's house for a drink on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. So it's generational. So we all hung out at the same place, but it was all generational. There were the little kids, the big guys, and the parents. And we, like my father's club was right next door to my candy store. And my father's club was a social club. Mm -hmm. Guys, and the candy store was essentially your social club. Yeah, exactly. And my sisters, but different times. We very rarely went in at the same time because mm -hmm. she had, she had a different. It was a different generation. She was mm -hmm. seven years older than me. Mm -hmm. Still is. So you know, it was that kind of environment, man. You know, it was like it was. It was nice. I mean, you know, I, you know, talk about what made Sammy run. I couldn't wait to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, and that's what it was like. It was very, very Italian. Everything was Italian. Midnight mass, you know, church and, you know, school uniforms. And and everybody talked like Brooklyn Italians, you know what I mean? Like the real, you know, Saturday Night Fever or yeah. Goodfellas. Everybody yeah. talked like that. Yeah. So you see the Beatles, changes yeah. your life, you get a guitar. And get in a band. You were in a band? Of course I was in a I band. I had no idea. No, no, no. I was a bass player in a band. Great. I was a bass player. The worst guitar player plays bass. That's the rule? That's the rule. Okay. That's how it is. <laughs> okay. My cousin Gene played guitar. He was better than me. Okay. And was it a four-piece band? Five-piece band. Five. Organ, one guitar, drums, and a singer. So there was one, two, three, four, five of us. Yeah. And um, we had a band, and we played, and then we got an agent in New York. So we played... Again, we were a cover band. Yeah. That was it. And you, know? you play Beatles covers or everybody's covers? Everybody's covers. Anything that we could play. Yeah. <laughs> Stones were big, yeah. right? You know, we played some Beatles songs. We played the Rascals. You know, we played Billy Joe's band, the Hassles. We covered his songs. Cool. Billy was incredible. We yeah. opened for them one day in Amazing. Long Island. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Amazing. on Amazing. He wasn't the singer. I didn't know that. There was a guy who was a singer. He, Billy sang too, but he wasn't the... He was just a keyboard player? He was an organ player. But he play sang, but they did a song. If you get a chance, go yeah. listen to the Hassles, You Got Me Humming. Okay. And Billy Joel was in that band. Billy Joel's a key organ player. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, no, he was great. So he was a little older than me. Still is. I'm going to see him next Friday night with Stevie Nicks. Amazing. Are you is going? It, where's he playing? SoFi. Him and Stevie no Nicks, co-head. Had no idea. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Sounds good. Stevie's on fire. Really? Stevie's audience literally is 25 to 40 now. Yeah. It's what's happened. I'm so happy for her. What's yeah. happened to her? She, she really. Something yeah. happened where she just connected with a young group of people in a way. Yes. It feels like it's been going on for like 25 years, That's 20, right. 25 years. That's right. Any young um, female artist you talk to, Always talks about Stevie Nicks. That's it's right. always like that's one of the. That's it. No, she's Aretha. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Unbelievable. She's the Aretha of right rock Unbelievable. Singers. I know. And you know, I got to tell you something, man. We've all recorded a lot of people. To me, in my world, the most natural instrument was Stevie Nicks. It was literally 
maybe two takes. She just opens her mouth and it was perfect. That's how she sings. Yeah. And that's how she sings that song. Yes. That's it. Yes. And you just go, wow. So cool. Yeah. So cool. I mean, really, Trent and Atticus are working with her right now on Amazing. one song. Yeah. I, the song is really, she wrote an incredible song. And uh, yeah, so, you know, I got in a band and then I, um, we started playing. We started getting someplace. I mean, it's cover band. We played on Gano's, which was a hot, hot club. We played Cafe Wa down the village, yeah. which was incredible. We played the Eighth Wonder. We played uh, Trudy Heller's. Uh, yeah. We played all those places. Again, opening up for The Illusion, you know, and yeah. all these bands, these Long Island or, you know. Uh, what were the clubs on Long Island? Uh, Hunkamunka. Was my father's place already there? My father's place was a little later. I saw some shows there when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah, a little later. But those were, Hunkamunka was big. It was really big on Long Island, you know. And we played more in Manhattan. We we got lucky. We met this woman that was an agent. She lived on, I never been to 59th Street. She lived on 59th Street. We went there. And um, I remember just, you know, going up there with my band. And she said, I get you some gigs. And she did. Amazing. And then and then we broke up about 17, 18 years old. And what I realized was that I was never going to be in the Rolling Stones. I got that, mm-hmm. right? I was smart enough to know that. But I wanted to touch it. So I, I realized that there were people that made the records, right? There, there are people that were involved in the record. So I, I, got, I met this, fortunately, I really got lucky. My cousin Pat knew this guy. I mean, show you how far away yeah. you were yeah. or I was yes. from any kind of, of course. gig, right? Yes. So introduce- an impossible idea to yes. be in the music business. Yes. So I meet this guy named Steve Tudanga through my cousin, who was a background singer for the Archies. Wow. All right. Good records. Yes. Background singer. Not not Ronnie Dante. Yeah. A background singer. Yeah. I didn't meet Ronnie Dante. Yeah. Yeah. I met the background singer. And I imagine not a lot of touring work for the Archies, being as they were cartoons. No. So exactly. No, no, the Archies, the, the right, the band, you yeah. know, the records, remember? But, but the record they did, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. a cartoon band. That's exactly right. They only existed in, in That's exactly animated. right. That's like so he was a writing partner of a legendary woman named Ellie Greenwich. I know who Ellie Greenwich is. Right. From the Brill Building, that yes. era of writing. Yes. So I used to go to her apartment after school and after work. Incredible. I, I had a job at the leading mail on King's Highway at the time. I remember. And I met Ellie Greenwich, and she had equipment in her room. Did she live apartment. in Manhattan or in? Or? She lived in Manhattan. I lived in Brooklyn. No, I yeah. lived in Brooklyn the oh. whole time. My so mother's you, house. you're taking the train? Yeah. Oh. My mother's house. Oh. So, um, I, I go to Ellie's house and I see she's writing and recording and then she started playing me some of the records that she produced. I mean, she wrote and produced Cherry Cherry. Yes. I mean, incredible you know, on Bang Records, right? Incredible. So I'm like, wow, that sounded incredible. She she wrote so many, the Do Ron Ron, mm. I Can Hear Music, um, be my baby, Inc- Chapel of Love. Incredible. She wrote all those records. She wrote River Deep Mount High. Incredible. Okay, I mean for Phil, right? Yes. 
So one day she's still on her Carol King comes out, does tapestry. Somebody told her you should make an album. So she went in and wrote and did an album called Let It Be Written, Let It Be Sung. So she invites me to the session. So I'm in the studio. And I'm, first time I've ever been to a studio. Remember what studio it was? What year? What studio it was. Oh, yeah, A&R. A&R. A&R, Phil Ramone studio. Yeah. Before I got my first job. So absolutely I remember what studio it was. And the engineer was named Elliot Shiner. He ended up doing all the Steely Dan records. Wow. But in those days, he did whatever was available, all big stuff, you yeah. know, big TV. And at that point, was he a studio engineer, meaning if you went to the studio, he was your engineer? Yeah. They weren't like engineer, independent engineers. No, well, I wasn't an independent engineer. I was part of the staff. I see. They're staff engineers. Staff and you go there and they give you an engineer. I see. Unless, like, you go there and the guy did Led Zeppelin, then you want him, right? right. You know, right. something like that, right? right. You could ask for somebody, but you worked for... So Elliot was a staff engineer for Phil Ramon. Gotcha. Donnie Hahn, Elliot, uh, Elliot Shiner. There was a bunch of guys. Yeah. And they were all very, very, very good. My boss at the record plant, Royce Akala, was also one of those engineers, but he was already at the record plant. So I go in, and she's out there singing Chapel of Love. I remember it, right? And all the lights are out, and there's candles, I said, what the fuck is this, right? And there's candles everywhere. It kind of looked like a, like a, you know, the village or something, you know, but it was this real sterile building. And this guy, Elliot Shine, is there and he's making the record. I say, what is he, what is that? Because he's a recording engineer. He's got these big knobs, you know, and he's turning the buttons. And, and at this the, point, is it like four track or eight track? No, no, it's, it's, it's eight and 16. Eight at and that 16. Point. It's, it's 1971. Okay. 1972. So eight, maybe just 8-track, Yeah, maybe 8-track, yeah. Probably probably 8. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably 8-track. And I saw that he had a leather bag, and I'd never seen a leather bag before, especially on a guy. Yeah. He said, wow, look at that. And at the end of the session, a girl, this really pretty girl came in, and he said, oh, okay, I'm going to go. I forgot her name, whatever it was. And they left. I said, I don't know what this is, but I want that. Yeah. At that moment, I just said, I got it. I'm yeah, the whole life. His, you saw. All in one. Yeah. The guy had a leather jacket, a leather bag, you know, clothes, yeah. right? <laughs> I'm sorry. You're Italian. I'm superficial. <laughs> I don't know what to say. You know, I'm going, I'm Italian. I'm going for the shit. Yeah. You know what it's I mean? great. I'm not looking for substance. No. You know, I'm looking for a gig to get out of Brooklyn, get some money and buy clothes. Yes. All right. So that's it. So uh, anyway, um, so. Ellie Greenwich got me a job in that studio. Amazing. Right? So Amazing. what happens is I get a 90, 90, I'll tell you a great story though. I get a 90 um, day trial. In that 90 day trial, uh, one day an assistant, I was below an assistant uh, at A&R. An assistant couldn't make it in. So the assistant, no, the engineer couldn't make it. So the assistant did the job. I became, became the, the assistant. Second, yeah. It was a Saturday. It was James Brown. Wow. Right? So I'm in there. I I just terrified of everything, not just James Brown. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Abject fear. I don't know yeah, how to do anything. Of course. Right. So, so we do the vocal. Every time he would come into the control room and sit in the director's chair, this guy would pick his hair because the headphones would dent his afro. Yes. Right. 
So we do that, had a towel around them. There was a guy that just used to put towels around them and stuff, you know. Even in the studio, because oh, he had yeah, that yeah, on yeah. stage, no, too. No, 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 in the studio, absolutely. Wow. At, tap his forehead. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, first time I ever saw anything like that. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's incredible. It's incredible. As he's leaving the studio. Well, for, tell me more about how great James Brown. Unbelievable. I was mean, it like, could you believe what you were seeing? No, the guy would in the vocal booth, dancing, singing, you know, and just being James Brown. Unbelievable. Right? It was unbelievable, right? It was incredible. Yeah. So at the end of the session, I'm cleaning up. The guy walks over to me. I think the guy's name was George, but I could be wrong. The guy walks over to me, puts $50 in my hand, and says, Mr. Brown wants you to have this. How cool is that? Right? He gave James me 50. Brown. So I go home. Yeah. And I run the next morning, Jerry the Cat, my drummer, comes over to my house and I look at him and I said, I'm gonna be rich here, okay? Yeah. What do you mean you're gonna be? I said, let me tell you something. I got fifty dollars left. Let's time. talk about how much fifty dollars was then. Nineteen seventy two. What would it be like today? What would it be? I don't be know, equivalent? I gotta look it up. But no, in your guesstimation, the feel, based on the I feel mean, of probably, it. Probably um I guess let me talk it through it actually. Probably 250 bucks. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Three like money. Yeah. A, you know, a lot of money. You know, like if somebody for, gives you a hundred bucks, if somebody gives you two hundred bucks, two hundred and fifty, that's that feels like real money, right? Absolutely. You could buy something in Gucci yeah. what or something. Were you, what were you making in the studio just to Oh, two to uh, four dollars an hour. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So to put in perspective. Yeah, four dollars an hour. Yeah. So I go home and I said, Okay, you know me. I'm gonna work every day. $50 a day, I got chalk in the street. $50 a day times 365. <laughs> On top of my salary. I never got a tip again. Of course. But it just yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, but you were you were inspired. Because when you come from that world, Rick, and so do you, you don't know anything. No. There's no sophistication. No. I didn't, you know, I didn't go to school. No. I, I just, you know, I walked into this place because she told me to. And I'll tell you, even for the people who came from a more substantial background, no one tells teaches you how to be successful because nobody knows. Oh, not close. Nobody knows. No. Especially in that world. Yeah. They were, I mean, you know, it was crazy, right? I mean, my mother and my sister, before I went to work, literally because I, I, I was brought up as the prince in an Italian family with a bunch of women, right? Yeah. My aunt, my cousins are downstairs. Yeah. They taught me how to sweep the night before the gig. They taught me how to literally how to sweep. Because yeah. Yeah. I knew I had to sweep. I yeah. said, Mom, I don't know how to sweep. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. never made me sweep. No, of course. So they taught yeah. me how to sweep. Amazing. <laughs> it's pretty primitive. Yeah. <laughs> right? So cool. Mm -hmm. Mr. Brown wants you to have this. Mr. Brown wants you to have this. How cool is that? Unbelievable. I wish I kept it, but I needed it. But yeah. um, so 89th day, I get fired. The guy says to me, his name was Don Hahn, right? He said to me, he was a chief engineer. He was everybody's boss. He said, you know, I'm sorry. He said, this is not for you. So I said, look, my father said, because I had left college, I said, my father said, if this doesn't work out, I've got to go back to school before I come home. Yeah, which you don't want to do. He said, I don't know what to say, you know, uh, because remember, I left school because of the draft. I got a high number in the, in the lottery. Mm -hmm. 
I got like 265, and they didn't draft up until like 180. Yeah. So the day that happened, I left school and yeah. went to work. Yeah. So he said, I'm sorry, you know. So I'm leaving, and this is where, this is where I, I got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame recently, and I said on a speech, I said about mentors and helping kids just be a mentor to kids. Because this woman, Ellie Greenwich, I called her up on the way home. Now think about this for yourself. Yeah. I called from a paper. I said, Ellie, I was really, I was just sort of crying, you yeah, know? Of course. I said, I got fired on the 89th day. She says, hang up, call me back in 10 minutes. She called a record plant. I called her back and she said, don't go home. I, I went, and she says, go to 321 West 44th Street. Wow. Ask for Eddie Germano and Roy Sakala. I walk in there. And they hired me. Wow. Unbelievable. Right? Then how long did you work at the record plant? Oh, then I, that was where my career started, you know, because uh, in, it was 1973 at that point. And um, I worked in the record plant until I came to California. I was, an en- I was a studio, I was a staff so like engineer. Six years. Yeah, yeah. I was a staff engineer. And then I started producing at the record how plant. How did you get trained as an engineer? Royce Acala. Roy Sakala was the greatest engineer teacher ever. Very eccentric guy. So eccentric that he had like, we didn't know what it was. It was OCD. I didn't, we didn't know what OCD was, right? He wouldn't like touch things that other people touched, you know, stuff like that, right? When he wanted to train you, you became his assistant. And it was like, literally like boot camp. It was hard, right? But he liked me. Mm-hmm. So now... I'm in the studio and he's teaching me, but because he doesn't want to touch everything, he would make me do it. I see. Say, give me two dB at ten thousand. Give me uh, which worked out great for you because you have all the hands-on experience. Right. Amazing. Right. And I'm learning so how to. So lucky. Bizarrely. Lucky. Seri- series of events. Yeah. That are like these right. magic. Right. Blessed. And you're the man that fell from earth, you know, which is what my sister used to call me, and fell to earth, rather. And so now I'm really learning because I've got to be, I'm I'm 24-7 with this guy. This guy was the busiest engineer in New York City. Yep. And, you know, he's doing John Lennon, he's doing, anybody who came to the record plant wanted him, right? (laughs) So, well, this other guy, Shelly Yakis. There, you know, Jack Douglas was an engineer there, the yeah. guy who produced John Lennon yeah. and Smith. Yeah. Guy who produced Walk This Way yeah. is Jack Douglas, yes. right? So uh, I see him still. Great. And um, he put me on everything. And then one day he was going to California. No, first they brought me in because he had another assistant who something happened. He ended up taking him off the project and he brought me in on Mind Games at the end. And uh, that was September of 73. And this is after you basically, the reason you're doing this is because you see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Yeah. And now you're in the studio with John Lennon. That's right. That's right. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. I didn't think they were the same person. Yeah. It was just too much. It was too much. Yes, too much. So, you know, I'm just like, how do I not get thrown out of this room? Because I've been thrown out of a few rooms. <laughs> you know, I'm sweaty, Rick. How do I not get thrown out of this room? Yes. How can I just overdo it? How yes. do I just serve? Yes. You know, how do I just be of service? Yes. Right? Yeah. Tea. I learned how to make John Lennon's tea. 
he wouldn't let anybody else make it. I timed it exactly. You know, like yeah. I was like the way I am about everything. I was about that fucking T. Yeah. You know, and so everything, the mics, the thing, you know, whatever Roy told me, you know, writing on the boxes, doing, you know. And then as time went on, Roy, like like all of us, which I know you've done, I know we've all done it, starts to get old a little bit. And you just start handing off things to other people. Mm -hmm. So now, right after that, this crazy thing happened with, um, with Lennon is Morris Levy sued John over, I believe it's uh, Come Together and Chuck Berry Can't Catch Me. He said he ripped them off, right? So they made a settlement and Morris Levy said, I want you to do an album of my songs because he had the, Morris Levy was a Is that song. why he did those songs? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, nobody knows the, that. The rock and roll album. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. So now... He decides he wants to use Phil Spector. Phil Spector won't come to New York. Roy says, I want you to come with me to California because you'll set the studio up for me. I want it to sound exactly like the record plan. I see. I don't go there. I want you to turn it into the record plan. Yeah. And what was the studio in LA? Uh, A&M. A&M. Studio A. Wow. Right. This is a full circle story. Where right. did I get to for that? For me it is, yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So now I'm in there. And the first day, I've got to, I go to the studio, I, I get, I start tuning the speakers, right? Because I learned how to do that. So cool. And so now I'm tuning the speakers to get them to sound like I know Roy likes him to sound. So yep. I'm playing mind games. Yep. I'm playing some other records that I assisted on with him. He got, he, Was that he, your first time in California? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I stayed at the, he put, John put me at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Amazing. In a bungalow. Amazing. <laughs> I had just turned 20. Amazing. Right. I didn't know. I'd never been on a plane. Oh, wow. Never been on a plane, never been to a hotel. Wow. I was once to the host motel in Philadelphia with my yeah. mother. Yeah. But other than that. Yeah. And you're still it. living at home with your mom at home. Oh, yeah. This is amazing. Oh, yeah. No, in, my, in Brooklyn, in that house. Amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So now I'm in the studio. Okay, now I got to go get the setup. So I got to go to Phil's house in Benning the Canyon. So and I never, you've never met him before? i never been to a big house. Yeah. i never, nothing, yeah. Yeah, nothing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So now there's a gate and there's a driveway. He lived on Benning the Canyon somewhere or somewhere around there. So I go there and I go in the, in the foyer and I said, I'm here to see Phil Spector. Who's that? But he's talking. I don't see him. He's talking from the upstairs. <laughs> I said, I'm here. I'm here on behalf of John Lennon and Royce Acala. I need the setup for tomorrow. Okay. Eight musicians. Guitar, bass, three guitars, da, 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 eight musicians. I said, okay. Anything else? No. I leave. I go to A&M the next day, and I'm setting up. I made it look like, I'm telling you, it was a painting. Every cable wired. Yeah. You couldn't trip if you wanted a trip. Yeah. Every microphone, every music stand, every echo tuned, every patch cord in, every piece of equipment, tape everywhere, written down. I was nuts about getting this right, right? So now I'm the first one in the studio. Two guys walk in, four guys walk in, three more guys walk in, 36 guys walk in. Musicians? Yes. 
we're here for the full Spectre session. We're here for the Phil Spectre session. Wow. I'm like, what? Phil, which is how he records, well, from when I left his house to the next morning, hired 36 musicians. Unbelievable. Eight guitar players, two drummers, Hal Blaine and Jim Keltner. Wow. Okay? Two bass players. Yeah. Six horns, three pianos, Leon Russell and Barry Mann. Wow. Playing the piano. Okay? Three background singers, Cher, Harry Nielsen, and I forgot who the other one was. Unbelievable. Right? So now I'm like, oh, fuck. So I got to rearrange. I said, give me an hour. I'll rearrange. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I get some help from the studio, yeah, the kid yeah. that worked from the studio, yeah. et cetera. That's a lot of setting up. Oh, man. That's a big session. Oh, man. That's a lot. That's a lot. Live? Yeah. Live? That's a big How about session. 36 headphones? Yeah, yeah. How about balancing the headphones with yeah, only two headphone buses? Impossible. You know, it it's very, like. Very difficult task. It's not 36 strings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. 36 yeah. musicians. Yeah, yeah. Banging. Yes. Right? So. Wow. Now Phil comes in, and this went on every night. So he comes in. Now these guys, everybody knows this story. I'm not Is John there yet or no? Yeah. John's already there. Yeah, yeah. Now every, no one, it wasn't there when the 36 guys came in, but that wasn't my job to tell him even. Mm -hmm. My job was it's ready. But he really trusted me. So he, him and Roy were both really, really patient with me, really mm -hmm. good with me. Mm -hmm. So they were always very kind to me. Roy was tough, but John was always really, really kind. Mm -hmm. So now Phil comes in and First, he's got it on a white butcher's coat. Right? Like a meat-cutting butcher. Yeah, okay. a coat, Yeah. right? And whenever he wanted to get my... So now the band starts playing. They're doing like Boney Maroney or something like that, right? One of those songs. And there's four tape machines, two a quarter-inch tapes with slap, because Phil liked a lot of slap, and John liked a lot of slap, mm -hmm. right? But when everyone that get up my now we're at this we're a stand-up console in Studio A. At the time there was a stand-up console. We both had to run the console because there's too much for one guy. Of course. I, you don't have that many hands. You don't have that many hands. It's like 36 and people. And there's no such thing as automation or we anything had like that. Four guitar players on one bus. Yeah. We had no choice. So we yeah. had to balance it from outside. Yeah. We had to just move the mics in and out yeah. to what we you know, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was real, real analog. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. When everyone wanted our attention, he had a boat horn. The air horn, yeah. Yeah. Those are loud. Unbelievably yeah, loud. And horrible. So now I'm like, now you're scared, right? Yeah. You don't know what And you're going deaf. I mean, if you're- It was horrible, right? So now we're making the album. And then eventually, uh, about a week and a half in, they comes in with the butcher coat, but now he's got guns strapped to him, right? He got two guns strapped to the fucking chest. And again, I'm not scared because I'm too busy. Yeah, you're just working. I'm not giving this job yeah, up. Yeah. But how? T what was? Did you ever? Did you talk to Phil at all? Yeah, I had was, to. What was he like? What was like you see? There's a documentary out, which is exactly like he's like. There's a new documentary on Phil. He's like, his voice is high like mine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of voice and. Uh, he talk fast. He talk slow. Yeah, he's a New York. He's from Philly. You know what I mean? He's a Jewish guy. He uh, seem impatient. Give me that note. Yeah, <laughs> Morocco, my this, my that. Yeah. Shares out there. Hey, 
whore, you know, wow. screaming at her, you know what I mean? Yelling at this guy, shut up. No, hey, put Barry Mann on the grand, put Leon on the, on the, on the Fender Rose, because that'll fuck with Leo, Leon's head. Just chaos. Chaos. Yeah. Chaos. Yeah. Chaos. Complete chaos. Yelling at people, calling but shit. You and John got along good? I'm going to add that element into okay. it right now. Okay. <laughs> Here's the element. Yeah. Alcohol. Yeah. Gallons of it. Yeah. There was a Smirnoff bottle they about this big. And they're just drinking. Drinking the whole time. And it, this is not a secret. Both Phil and John. And everybody. Right. Everybody. This is an incredible story. No, it is. It's, it's an incredible I can't believe I know you as long as I know you, and I've never heard this story. Not a lot of people know this, this story. This is an unbelievable story. So now he's yelling at everybody, and it's crazy. And I'm just trying to get it on tape. Right, and my boss, boss, a very quiet, stoic kind of guy. Quiet. He's like, but he's tough. Mm. Sitting there saying, "Give me this, give me that." John's mic's not working. I'm running, like hundred miles an hour into the studio, changing the mic, fixing the mic. You know, you know, you know. Number seven guitar player, the mic's not working. Give me a new mic. Try, try something more directional. Right. And also, the more people that are there, the more pressure there is because. There's a lot of people waiting around for everything always. Yeah. How, about, like, how, a, how about water, tea? Yeah. I'm like, yeah. you know. It's a lot. It's a, I'm just picturing how stressful it is for, for people who don't yeah. know the situation. It's, it's incredibly stressful. And everybody's talking. Yeah. At once. Yeah. And they're all asking you for something. Yeah. And the drummer's fucking around so you can't hear anything the bass you know so we record i don't know three weeks like that or something like that did it settle in at any point no no stayed different i had to go out and get the alcohol as well so i had to borrow the identification because i was only 20 of the guy at the front desk to go buy the alcohol there was an alcohol there was a liquor store on the corner yeah so we, I had a guy helping me from A&M, but it, as far as Roy was concerned yeah. and John, it was on me. Yes. Remember, I'm only there six months yeah. at the record plant. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so now, now Phil, this is even crazier. So Phil, one night, and this is in a book that just came out, the Tony King book. I don't know if you know Tony King. I don't is. know Tony King. He was the president of Apple. Oh, cool. And um, so now... Everybody's really drunk. See, it's very, it's very, everybody knows that during this period of time, it was called a lost weekend for yeah. John, that he got, yeah. you know, drunk and stuff. And how, just so I have an idea, how long are the sessions every day? I don't really remember, but you know, we started, I'd get there at noon and they'd go to like 11 or 12, you know? Yeah. So you have a 12 hour hard oh, day. Oh, yeah, yeah, day. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now Phil goes crazy. I used to drive John home, and then this one night, Phil wanted to drive him home with his bodyguard, and a book just came out. You can read about this. John was drunk, and they tied him up, right? So now, the album falls apart, right? And uh, John did not take kindly to being tied up. No, yeah, did it. Neither did anybody around them, yeah, you know. Yeah. And um, yeah. and uh, it was a nightmare. But up until that time, what was the relationship between Phil and John like? producer artist yeah but did did was john was going along with all of phil's craziness and just cool yeah because john was experienced he was already john, a beetle john was into the 
everybody was in that moment and in that mindset. Yeah. It was out there. Yeah, yeah. It was really out there, yeah. right? So John was amazing. I got to tell you, man, there was in one day, he wasn't splendid to me. Not one. I did a lot of shit with him. I did the Salute to Salute grade. You know, I did, I did that TV show with him. I did three albums with him. You know, so you know what three albums is. People don't yeah. understand it. Even people yeah, that are yeah. listening to so this. You live with them. You, you, you live you're with sitting them. next to the guy for three albums, yeah. you know, 200 days or whatever it is. You know, yeah. no more than that. It was two years. Yeah. You know, so, you know, he was drinking at the time, you know, and it's no secret. It's in every book in the world. So now. And this is when he's not with Yoko. Is that correct? Right. Because he. But before that, before that, I forgot this. Before that, Phil went to the bathroom and shot the place up, right? During the session, right? Wild. Yeah. Oh, another thing that would be, you would be interested in, during the session, now David Geffen is going out with Cher, right? Yeah. So David walks in. Now I know this is David Geffen, right? Yeah. In A&M, David's leaning against the wall, Phil's behind me, and I'm at the, the headphone console, which is right, at, right near the door, right? Mm -hmm. So what people understand, recording i'm in a recording studio right now this is not a big room mm -mm. you know what i mean but the, the, and the room was not that much bigger than this mm -hmm. so uh david comes in and he starts he starts yelling you da, 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 david so david says something very davidish this is phil is yelling at david yeah and david very david says something sarcastic to him like I don't know about you, but right now I have number three, four, five, and seven, eight. You know, something, <laughs> something like that. He just pisses him off. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and at this point in time, does David have asylum? Is this asylum days? Yeah. No, no, 73, yeah. Or whatever it was, maybe. Yeah, asylum, his, his, his big label. Whatever 73 was. Yeah, yeah. He was very successful, yes, we yes, all yes. know, yes, right? Yes, yes. So, so Phil goes after him. And then all of a sudden, Phil. Physically. Yeah, then physically. Phil. Goes into a karate stance. <laughs> ha! <laughs> I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. These people do this too? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've, uh, I've seen fights of yeah. weird shit growing up. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't yeah, know. People are, everybody's crazy. Turns out everybody's That's crazy. That's exactly right. So now we get thrown out of the studio. <laughs> Phil, uh, oh. I left one thing out. So it was 73. Now, you know, I don't know about you, but when you're, this is 50 years ago. Yeah. So some of the stuff blends together. Of you course, know? of course. But uh, so Phil calls me up one day and says, um, we're canceling the studio. I said, why are we canceling the studio, Phil? I said, every, every, all the musicians are coming. Do you hear this? I don't hear anything. He goes, there's helicopters over my house. They think I've got the Watergate tapes. I don't even know what the water tapes are. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. like, I'm but in. he's completely paranoid. I'm in a zone, right? Yeah. So it was like stuff like that going on yeah. all the time. Unbelievable. Right? But anyway, so all the things run together. But all I can say is that John was magnificent to me every day. Every day was the greatest guy. Wanted to teach me. He and Roy taught me together. Like during Walls and Bridges, Roy's wife had a baby. So he took off six weeks and left me alone with John. Incredible. And I did all the overdubs on the album. Incredible. Right? 
So now, you know, I was 21 at this point. No, 20, 21 at this point. And I'm just like, what a way to learn is to really, because it set, I didn't know. I didn't have great taste in music when I was a kid. You know, like, I wasn't the first guy to have the Stones record. I wasn't the first guy to hear Cream. Like, my friend Allie played me Cream. You know, I, I was always a little behind. But I really learned... I, ever, ever since those sessions, it's how I made records until I quit making records wow. with the live vocal. Yeah. So I had to feel the vocal. So John sang live all the time. So I would, I would just wait, wait. We would wait till he got the vocal. It didn't have to be a 100% finished vocal, but the feel was based on the vocal. So everybody's playing off of the vocal. That's right. And you don't get a take until it's right, right? So I recorded like that my entire life. Yeah. But those six weeks with those six weeks with John, I got really lucky, uh, but I was a little terrified. During those sessions, we did whatever gets you through the night, which is a really fun song. It was a single yeah. from the album. Yeah. And uh, Elton at the time was bigger than US Steel. You know what I mean? He was uh, it was 1974, so he yeah. had huge. Like, I remember he had like three number one albums that year, some yeah. some crazy stuff. Yeah. And Tony King, again, brought him to the session, and Elton was going to sing on the session. So, so he sings on this, he comes in, I'm terrified. And John says to me, I said, John, Elton John's coming to the studio. <laughs> okay? I said, I'm really nervous. He said, trust me, he's more nervous than you. I'm a Beatle. Yeah. And then he told me the story about and i hope i have the song the song right he said i was recording with eric or somebody right yeah I, 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 did eric play on cold turkey i don't know i don't know but one of those songs and and the, the guy froze up eric froze up one, one of the great classic jeff but one of those guys yeah, froze yeah, yeah. up yeah. and john said i told him play you bastard because he was nervous because he's in the room with me because yeah. you understand in 1973 yes Again, remember the I told you it's hard to ex explain the the Big Bang of, yes. of seven, 64? Of the Beatles. Being around the Beatles in 1970 to 74. Yes. There was nothing like it. I don't know. There's I've never met a celebrity no, since. No. Never. No. There's nothing like that. <laughs> nothing. There's, no, there's never been anything like that. No. no. Those four guys, right after the Beatles broke, even during, the, I didn't know them during the Beatles, yeah. but... People froze. Yeah. Fro musicians froze. Of course. So now we, we're recording the vocals. I, I'm saying to myself, I never really recorded on a piano without Roy, my boss. So wow. I hope he doesn't want to play the fucking piano. Yeah. Right. So I'm the same this to myself. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Naturally. Interesting though. Interesting. Interesting problem. Right. So now they're they're facing each other with these two really dynamic microphones singing. And you listen to the record, you hear how thin and high pitched they are. They're on a really hot, dynamic mic. And I hear Elton say, Let me try piano. I'm like, Oh, fuck. Unbelievable. Son of a bitch. So I had to remember how I set it up for Roy, and I just did that. Yeah. And show you what kind of guy John was. So Elton walks in and he says, Hey, great piano sound. John says, That's why we use them. He's fucking around, you know, because I mean? he knew I was nervous, you yeah, know. Amazing. But he would just give me a shot on anything and everything. 
I don't understand it. I don't understand it until today. It isn't because I was talented. It's because he liked me. Yeah. And he felt he could trust me because he told me that once. He said, you know, working with me, people are going to ask you to get to me. And I can tell you're the kind of kid that won't. Yeah. And I learned. Yeah. You I were said, protective oh. of him. Of course. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. But I got it. Yeah. I learned. And, you know, what I'm trying to say is that whatever kids are out there trying to do stuff, don't be embarrassed of what you don't know. Yeah. Because it's charming. Yeah. And it's open and it's honest. Absolutely. And the people around you would rather hear you don't know or say you do know and blow something up. Absolutely. You know, so I've always been like that. I always tell everybody, we'll get into this. I said, man, in 1991, I had no idea what fucking hip hop was. I wasn't Russell Simmons. I wasn't Rick Rubin. I landed on it. it did, I didn't, I said, but the only thing that I saw in hip hop was the whole world should hear this and I have a record company and I'm going to spend the fucking money to let everybody hear this. Because when I, when, I, when I went to sign a death row, Doug called me and said, look, my entire black, depart- black music department here says, you're paying so much money. This stuff doesn't, First of all, it doesn't sell more than, than what the Easy e album said. It's impossible. And it doesn't travel outside of America. And uh, you're going to get killed. I said, I got to tell you, Doug, I don't believe any of these three things. I said, as a producer, I had nothing but I had massive hits in Europe uh, and outside of America as a producer. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, Europe, European groups like Dire Straits and Simple Mind used to hire me because mm-hmm. they... I understood for some yes. reason. Yes. Not, I mean, well, I don't know what the fuck it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it worked. Right. I was good with those groups. Yeah. So I said, I don't agree with any. I said, they're going to be dancing to this in China. Now, I had no idea. I'm telling you, man, I said this before. It reminded me of the Rolling Stones. Yeah. It was like Mick and Keith. I said, I know who these guys are. They scare the fuck out of you. You go and you but the music. You love the music so much that you go in closer. Yeah. And yeah, it was da- dangerous music has always been popular. Right? But when you add black to it, it does another thing. Mm-hmm. That's what's wrong with the world, especially America. Yeah. But it, that, that didn't, I wasn't one of those guys. Yeah. So I didn't, you know. So I remember with Dre, when Dre and Suge first came in, it was, but anyway, we'll go back to, we're doing chronological shit, but anyway. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. We, can, oh, okay. we could jump around however you like. But um, yeah, I remember when they came in, they, uh, they had an album finished. Was Straight Outta Compton already out as yeah. an independent record? Oh, yeah. No, they, they were on um, Ruthless. This is when Suge got that quote, got Dre off of Ruthless Records. I see. Okay? Yeah. Got him off of Ruthless Records, and yeah. they were being sued by... When I made that deal for them, they were being sued by Sony, Ruthless, Brian Turner, and a guy named Michael Michael Harris who attempted murder on his uh, cousin or something. I don't know if I ever, I don't, sorry, I don't know if I have it wrong, but he was in jail for life. Trump pardoned him recently, right? I'm just saying that there's a guy, I hear he's a good guy and stuff, but he, he was suing death row as well. So um, I had to settle all four of those cases with the people. Yeah. So I, I said, man, fuck that. I believe in these guys. John McClain brought him in, told me this was it. I'm good at listening to How people. How long did you know John McClain? I knew him from A&M. Cool. We did a mix together on YouTube. Nice. The Hollywood remix of uh, Desire. 
Nice. Wonderful. I mean, just Did incredible. Did you make many records for A&M? No. I just had the studio. Oh. Never okay. worked out. Oh, so you made them at the studio. I understand. I just built a studio with this guy, Shelly Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So now we go and settle out those lawsuits. And um, and let's talk more about what you saw. So you saw the Easy Re E record came out first, then Straight Outta Compton came out. Yeah. Those records were blowing up, and they yeah. were. I know my my interest in hip-hop at that time was at a low point until I heard those. That was like, oh. Well, I didn't, I didn't get that either. The first time I, I understood anything about hip-hop is Bono brought Leo Cohen and Chuck D yeah. to A&M Studios because yeah. they were going to open up for you too. Yes. So I invited them to my house in Malibu. Nice. Right? And I listened to them talk, and I was understanding it, but I still didn't get it. Yep. I'll be honest with you. I didn't. I was producing you too. I wanted to start a label. Of course. I wasn't. I wasn't paying attention, right? Yeah. And um, I wanted to get out of producing. And you were all so busy that you, your right. plate was full somewhere else. Yeah, and I was producing. I was doing other stuff, right? Yeah. And I was doing the Christmas album. Uh, it's very special Christmas. So. Now it's 1990 or 91. Well, let's and, talk about starting the label because that's right. a big story. Well, what happened to me was I was producing and I was burnt on it. Mm -hmm. I knew it. I was 18 years and mm -hmm. I was burnt. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I had a kid. It was 1988. I had my son, Jamie. And even though they didn't ask me to do it, they told me they were going to Germany, to Berlin to do their next album. In Berlin, the wall had just come down. I know it's freezing there, you know? Yeah. I'm like, oh, man, I got to, I just had a baby. I got to go to Berlin for this guy. Because remember, they just almost killed me on the last album, yeah. on Rattle and Hum. Yeah. I was like, these fucking, it's, a, it's like four on one. Yeah. And was, it's, and it's um, a maddening process. Maddening. <laughs> right? <laughs> so we're doing two albums, a live album, a studio album, and a movie. Yes. So I just was fried. I said, I'm not doing this. I'm, I got to, and something else happened because I don't want to sound altruistic and I don't want to yeah. sound all phony. Yeah. Geffen sold his company. Oh yeah. So I was like, yeah. wait a minute. I think he does what I do. Yes. Uh, he just made all this fucking money, yeah. right? And then I said, I'm also not getting, I'm not going to be getting the young groups. You know, when you get to a yeah, certain level. Up. Of course. The labels don't give you the, they think you're going to be too expensive. And, you know, yeah. in those days, that's what it was like. The label would try to avoid you, yeah. get you their group on the third album, right? When they knew a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So I said to David, hey, I want to start a record company. You should do it. There are a lot of record people a lot dumber than you. <laughs> that's inspiring. Right? I yeah. said, I believe that. Yeah. Right? And you got to you also dealt with a lot of record people over the years, even as a producer. Yeah, but when, when he said it, I, I, you know, I'm always yeah. a fan of David, you know, yeah. and he's always been great to me. So yeah. when he said it, I said... First time you met him was when he was in the room with Phil? I didn't meet him. He, you just saw him? Yeah. You just That's the first time you were in his presence? Yeah, the first time I met him was 1980. John Landau set up lunch for me at um, La Dome. At your request? No, at John's request. John said, you should meet this guy. He told David, they were starting Geffen Records. He said, you should meet this guy. He's a great producer. I see. That's what John said. So I met I David. See. And we had a very nice lunch. And we became friends. Yeah. Right? 
and he just constantly stayed in my life and it helped me, you know? So when he sold his company, I'm like, man, I, I, uh, he introduced me to Ted Field, right? David introduced you to Ted Field? David talked to Ted first and Ted said, I want somebody to run a record company. Him, Eric, and Eddie Rosenblatt said, I think Jimmy could do this for you. I hear he wants to start a record company. Because I was going to start a record company and go through David. Yeah. Originally, though, you were going to do with Irving. And then Irving. Yes. I remember. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And um, then I think Mo didn't want me on the, in, the, in the game on, that, on Irving's deal. Yeah. Wow. I think Mo just felt, he didn't see it. You know, whatever, know. right? So I went to Dave and he said, well, this guy, Ted, he said, Jimmy's looking to start a label, right? And um, I meet Ted, Paul McGinnis, you know how things come together? Paul yeah. McGinnis also met Ted and mentioned it, right? So uh, this guy, Tony Dimitriotis, everybody kind of supported, but David was the guy that, like he does, yeah. focused. Yeah. And I went to him and then I said, David, you know, uh, Doug wants to put up half the money. And David said, do what's right for you. I just sold my company. I don't give a shit. Do what's right for you. Yes. And I took the money from Doug. Yeah. Because then it made it easier for Ted. I didn't want to be reliant on one person for of the course. money. You know, that's never safe. Of course. Right. So we did it. You know, and I then remember we you calling me and you said, and I can't remember if it was a million or a billion, but you said, it must have been billion. I just signed, I just signed a billionaire. Right, right, right. <laughs> Well, found out he wasn't, but that, anyway, yeah. but that's whatever what I it was. Yeah, but I don't that know. Was the perception. Maybe he was. Who yeah. knows? He was yeah. it a lot of, but I, I remember I would definitely say that. Well, you did. I'm telling you, you okay. did. I was there. <laughs> I'm absolutely. I <laughs> it would was definitely. Fun. It was, I remember because it was so funny. Yeah, I would definitely say yeah. that. But, um, and I got my first deal to start a record company, and then we started Interscope, and John McClain was with Ted and Tom Wiley. And John McClain walked in and he said, this is the guy. Who was the first band you signed? Or what were the first group of artists? The first thing we signed, the first thing was Gerardo, Rico Suave. Yeah. And you have a hit, Out of the Box. I wanted a hit. Yeah. I didn't give a fuck if it was the cha-cha-cha. Yeah. I wanted my promotion team to have a hit. Yes. And it worked. Yes. Then Tom Wally brought in Primus and Helmet. Great. Who were great. Yeah. Then we got Tupac, and then we got No Doubt. How did Tupac come in? Uh, through Tom. Wow. Tom is a great A&R guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So was John. Yeah. So I wasn't in the record business, so I didn't know anybody, but they would bring me in. Yeah. And I would get them out of their deals, and I would figure it all out. Yeah. It's like this guy that used to do PA for loan, was managed, managed loan justice with me, brought Gwen in. I hired him at Interscope. And I went down to No Doubt's rehearsal, and I said, these guys are great. Right? Yeah. I saw her. And, yeah. and they were huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you're saying, you know, you remember those days, right? Yeah, absolutely. So Dre, you know, Dre and Suge just came to my office and John said, play it. And they played me the chronic. And I remember the time because they were friends of yours. I remember I, I tried to listen to Hank Shockley records. Yeah. And, it, you know, if you're an engineer in music and rock and roll and you're trying to get everything to be really present and really powerful. And it sounds like this. You know, the whole subwoof, the, the whole, they the didn't have the 808 on the control. I see. And then all of a sudden, Dre walks in, and it sounds like Pink Floyd. Yeah. It's one of the greatest recordings I'd ever heard. Any kind of music. Yes. So now, I feel like I know something about this. Yeah, because Dre's music is not sloppy in any way. It's not like anybody else's. No. 
And then, and also I don't understand samples. Yeah. And he, everybody's playing live. Got a few things in there, but the bass and drums are players, right? So I'm like, who produced this? He said, me. I said, yeah, but who engineered it? He said, me. I'll never forget it. I said, this guy will define Interscope. Yeah. And that was it. That day, as soon as I heard that on my tannoys that I mixed all the albums on yes. that was in my office, yes. I brought them in London. Yep. I bought, in Oxfordshire, I bought them. Wow. I bought them. Remember, I was doing an album with the Motors in England, you yeah. know, and I heard these speakers. I went to the factory or something. I bought them, and I mm. knew those speakers. And I just, I said, I got to get this. And I said to Sugar and Dre, give me three weeks. Now, if you guys fuck around and go to a lot of different labels, I'm going to hear about it and I'm going to bounce. Yeah. I'll tell you what, they kept their word. Yeah. And I did. And we settled with Michael Harris, Jerry Heller, uh, Sony. Yeah. I mean, there was a Rico case on these guys. And, um, and, my, and Brian Turner, priority. Mm-hmm. I settled with everybody. They were all very happy. I wrote checks, right? And um, that was it. And then we put the record out, and then the rest is, Amazing. you know what? Tell me about Doug, your relationship with Doug. When did you first meet Doug? Stevie Nicks. Because she Nicks. was on Atlantic. She was on, she was on Atlantic. And Doug was already running Atlantic, yep. or Ahmed was still there? Uh, no, he was the head of ATCO. Doug was the head of ATCO, and Ahmed was still running Atlantic. ATCO's associated label, so yes. they brought in modern records, Danny Goldberg and Paul Fishkin, and they went to Doug. I see. And Danny and Paul and Doug, they asked me to go meet Doug because they wanted me to produce Stevie's album. He said he wanted to meet the guy that was going to produce the album. And mm-hmm. I had just done Damn the Torpedoes. Mm-hmm. And Stevie loved Damn the Torpedoes. She loved Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. So, And you'd never worked with Stevie before this? No, no. Fleetwood Mac was like this giant supersonic Absolutely. California. I didn't even know they were English. You know yeah. what I mean? Just. Yeah. I just knew it as out of my range. Yes. You know, background harmonies. You know yes. what I mean? Huge. It was like, Huge. what is that, right? Mm-hmm. So I go to meet her and I get the gig, right? And we're going to finishing up Tom and I was going to start her. But we were, and then we ended up doing Hard Promises first. And it's funny because we share Tom, you and I, you yeah. know? And uh, you had him first. What <laughs> you had him first? I'm, unfortunately, I'm ten years older than you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna do a lot of things first. <laughs> you know, everything. I mean? Everything we're talking about, you did first. <laughs> well, I'm ten, yeah, I mean, you know, our birthdays are a day apart, ten years apart, right? You know, so I meet Stevie, and you know, I, again, I'm that guy from Brooklyn. I'm working in New York. I just got out to California. Let me tell you about recording studios. Man, I remember that Elliot Shine. I remember that throwback to that story where he had the girl. Mm-hmm. You don't meet girls in a recording studio. You know what I mean? You just don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's not Studio 54. Yeah. It's Record Plant Studio, yeah. right? Yeah. So Everybody's there to work, and it's you're focused on... So girls are like some other thing yeah. that maybe I could figure that out someday. Yeah, yeah. Right? But it wasn't going to happen where you were working. It wasn't going to happen anyway. Yeah. I was 26 years old. You know, I had a, I remember girlfriends growing up and stuff, but I had a few girlfriends here and there, but it was, I was just trying to learn how to make records, right? Yeah. And you were very driven. It, it sounds like you were very, yeah. very driven. I was very driven until the day I retired. Yeah. And that's why I retired. I didn't yeah. want to be driven anymore. Yeah. And it was a conscious thing. Nice. So now 
I start going out with Stevie. How does that happen? I don't know. I'd have to ask her. Now, Stevie moves into my house, and I'm producing Tom. And you know Tom. He don't want to hear that your attention is someplace else. Ever about anything. Anything, ever, ever. So I'm like... I had a house in Sherman Oaks. He was coming over one day. I said, look, Stevie, and it was an upside down. I said, you got to hide in the basement. I said, look, just stay down there. You know, you have tea and toast and, you know. And Tom came over and she was hiding in the basement. And he, she hears us playing, you know, and she always talks about it. She had her ear to the door, you know. And uh, so, but, you know, I, I was very clumsy, you know, and I didn't. I didn't know how to do anything socially, anything. So incompetent outside of recording studio. I only felt safe in a recording studio. I don't know if you know that feeling. Yeah. You must. Yeah. I only felt like I was in water as a fish yes. in the control room. Yeah. Outside of that, I was flopping around. Yeah. You know? So, you know, that... But when I did Belladonna, which was uh, turned out to be an incredible album, that was the first album. You know, Patti Smith had a band. We'll get into that, but Patti Smith, you know, had a, we, we did Easter, right? But she had a band. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you have a band, a lot of the arrangements come built in. You work on stuff, but the arrangements are pretty how much... They, how they play it. How they play, right? Yeah. Stevie was a particular challenge. I think you'd be interested in this. It was a real challenge. And the reason why it was a challenge is she's coming out of Fleetwood Mac. That's like coming out of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Yep. And they have three incredible singers mm -hmm. and three incredible writers. Mm -hmm. I had friends of mine say to me, I think you're making a mistake. I'm not sure she can sing a whole album. Yeah. Because she never did before. Right. Well, you know what She sang that, on the whole album, but was never the focus. And that was it. the first time I realized that conventional wisdom leads to conceptual blindness. Yes. Okay? Yes. So the conventional wisdom was she sang three songs. Yes. Now, she doesn't have a band. Mm -hmm. she, she has these two girl singers that were her best friends. Mm -hmm. And I got to go create a sound for her. Because she's a very simple writer on the piano. Dun, 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 you know? But that voice and the melodies and the words are just unbelievable. But I still feel responsible to help put a sound together. But I didn't I came from bands. I didn't want to put a sound together like Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or yeah. those LA records that were great records, but yes. they weren't the stones. Yeah. It wasn't Tom Petty. Yeah. It wasn't it didn't Patty sound Smith. like a band. It's it sounded like because they had that guitar player. They had that guitar player that only sounds like the guy Campbell, or only yeah. sounds like Keith, or yeah. only yeah. you know, or Bruce's yeah. the band. It Roy sounds Bitten. like the Wrecking Crew, right? Roy Bitten, yeah. right? Yeah. They're not on every record. Yeah. So. So you wanted the band to have personality too, right? right. Yeah. So what I did was, which I felt was a giant leap for me intellectually. <laughs> I went out and I got guys from every band. So I got Roy Bitten yep. from the E Street Band. I got Ben Montench Great. from the Heartbreakers. I got Don Felder and Davey Johnston from the Eagles and Elton John. And I brought in Linda's drum crew 
Keltner and Bob Glob. Incredible. Right? And Waddy Wattell. Incredible. Right? Good so man. I had three guitar players, two keyboard players, Davy Johnston. I only wanted him to play that 12-string guitar. If you ever heard him play that, if, he, if he's ever around, I think he's still around, and you got to do a record, nothing sounds like Davy Johnston on, an, on, on an, a 12-string guitar. Nothing. Cool. So you put Roy Bitton, Ben Montench, and Davy Johnston. Now you've got an orchestra. Yeah. Those three guys sound like nothing else together yeah. that anyone's ever heard. Yeah. And every one of them is as unique sounding as any of the great rock and roll band musicians yep. in the world. Yep. So that gelled like crazy. And then we were able to make that record. So if you listen to a song like Edge of 17, now Stevie wrote that over a police song. That's in the beginning of Loops. So she made a 16-bar loop of a police song, Bring On the Night, or something like that. And she sang. The White Wing Dove section was the 16 minutes in. So we had to spend three days yeah. playing it and piecing it together. And if you listen to it, the bass drum and the verse, because the police played like reggae kind of feel. So there was a, the bass drum is on the end. Yeah. And the way I used to record, I would stand in the middle of the room, not the control room, in the studio. In the live room. Yeah, with headphones on, because I, I wanted to work with the band. So, I don't know. That was the first album that I actually was a gigantic part of the arrangement, you know, because I had to be. Yeah, 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 because it wasn't a self-contained thing. Right. You and had to build it. But I didn't want to make a studio album with her. Understood. It was so clear in my mind not to do that. Yeah. So cool. It was just a good idea, right? Absolutely. I know. That's what it always comes down to. It's like, it's, it's a good idea. You don't even know where it comes from. It's just an inclination. And you don't know how to do it. No. So I just figured, I'm going to go the, the horses that got me here. Roy Bitton. Yeah. Ben Mott. Yeah. I love Davey Johnston. We used yeah. to play with Elton. How great is Ben Mott? Forget it. It's unbelievable. He's pure soul. He's pure soul. You listen to him on Damn the Torpedoes because that's an interesting thing I'll tell you because you produced that band. Yeah. So when I was making Born to Run and I'm mixing it, remember, none of us knew how to make a record. Mm -hmm. Me, John, Landau, or Bruce. Mm -hmm. But I had to mix it. Mm -hmm. I never mixed an album before. Mm -hmm. So now I thought when you mix an album that you have to hear every instrument. So if you get a chance, listen to Born to Run, and you realize how complex those arrangements are, those chord changes, the band's playing a million different parts. Yeah. So I just sat there until you could hear every instrument. But whenever I got, I get bored really quick. I, I think most record producers and DJs, like a DJ gets bored because he's looking at the audience and he's bored before they're bored, so he changes the song. Mm -hmm. Everybody goes, oh, I'm so glad he changed the song. <laughs> you know, It's just that he was bored five seconds before you. And that's the way I am mixing. If I'm mixing a record, I got to do something. But I, I, again, I quit producing when, when digital came out because I liked analog mixing. Mm -hmm. I only could do it if I'm pushing everything up around myself. Yeah. So whenever I got in trouble on Born to Run, I'd go to Roy Bitton. And Ed Nosh, every time you go to him, you push the goddamn thing up. And he's doing something. Something good happens. Something great. Yeah. He's never not playing something great. Yeah. So when I went to the Heartbreakers, I pushed Benmon up. If you listen to that album, yeah. 
That organ is loud. I'm going to listen to the album with this in mind. Yeah. I've listened to it no, a million it's times. Loud. But it's loud. That's a great way to listen to it. Yeah. That'll no, be it's fun. loud. And yeah. you know what else is loud? Because I used to argue with Stan, the drummer, a lot. Yeah. Because, But to me, he places on the back end of the beat. Yeah. And it would always drive me crazy because I was hearing Tom's album. I was trying to make walls and bridges. So I was, in, I was thinking of drums like Max and, and Keltner. And this drum was like a, a loping kind of thing. And it used to drive me crazy. And the guy who saved the day to me, probably didn't save the day for the world or Tom Petty, but say we're mixing the album and Jim Keltner is working next door. We're mixing the album at Cherokee. Sticks his head in and he goes, you know, knew me from John Lennon, right? Yeah. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I said, I, I said, Jim, I'm doing great. He goes, he has a film can in his hand a little film can. And he goes, listen, this is what this, and it's refugee. He says, this is what this song needs. I said, would you go play it now? And he went out and played it. And I said, put all the other songs up. <laughs> we put the fucking shaker on everything. Yeah, it just glued everything together. When you hear the album, yeah. the fucking shaker is so loud. Yeah, It's like, yeah. And it made Stan work to me. So great. Now, Stan is incredible. The sound of the drums is unbelievable. Yeah. But so now we're doing an album. And, you know, I, I'm, I always tell this story because, you know, it's important to show things you got wrong. Yeah. As well as things you got right. Of course. So we're doing uh, Belladonna. And I feel even though we had Edge of 17, but I didn't know what Edge of 17 was. I realize now, 40 years later, that it's everybody's favorite, one of Stevie's favorite songs that people have done. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about that, but okay. it's really, it, it's incredible. Like Trent Reznor loves that song, yeah. you know? People that I never knew likes the, yeah. yeah. So Tom had a song, which was Stop Dragging My Heart Around, that we weren't gonna use because it was like a blues song. And remember, I, my mind with Tom was making hits. Yeah. That's what I thought we did. Because I consider music you could have a credible song, a moody credible song, or you could have a hit song. But when you put them together, that's what you really want. It's my life by the animals, satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, yeah. light my fire by the doors, you know, we gotta get out of this place, the animals. Yeah. You know, Foxy Lady. Great. I want those records that come together and are mass appeal, but also Give the, me real, the real deal. The Sympathy for the devil. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So Tom singing Stop Dragon wasn't a hit. So I said, let's give it a CV, because I had just done this with Bruce, with Patti Smith and Because the Night. Yeah. And what a great song Because the Night is. Yeah. That's a great Bruce didn't song. want to use it. It's a great song. The record is spectacular. It's the first so record I ever produced. Good. That's incredible. Yeah beautiful one yeah the the drums on that were something that shelly yakis and i we just started working together and that was the first thing we did and um because he was an engineer at the studio and so was i but i became a producer but i wanted to have an engineer yeah because i could yeah, deal so with you could be free yeah and uh that was the first and we started mixing it at midnight till 10 in the morning it's incredible, and she sings it great. I know. She owns the song. You know, and I don't know why, but I just heard her on that song. Yeah. You know what Not I mean? Not an obvious fit. No, 
No, well, John, Bruce, Bruce wasn't Bruce wasn't using it. Yeah. It was thrown away. Yeah. I said to him, "You throwing the song away?" He says, "Absolutely." Yeah, but Bruce throws away a lot of songs. Yeah, he, he writes out. He lot. wrote that and Fire the same time and gave them both away. Gave one to Robert Johnson. Incredible. You know, but um, although you know, some that would talk about him because yeah, that's where I learned a real work ethic with Springsteen. I learned that you don't stop until you get it you know bruce said something brilliant said many things brilliant but he said i didn't want to be rich i didn't want to be famous i didn't even want to be happy i wanted to be great yeah and that's what he's like yeah. and in those and studios at that time and he is he was broke yeah and we were all struggling yeah and he just kept us all there you know i remember one night we're mixing she's the one and you know what happens. My ears clogged up. Of course. But we only tell. had nine days to mix eight songs. Mm. So I couldn't stop. Because the album, remember, he was getting dropped from Sony. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know any of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's say, we'll talk about yeah. Bruce B. Okay, okay. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Anyway, so Tom, so I gave, we got her the song. He sang on it. And then I didn't know how it worked. And Atlantic dropped the record right on top of his record. So basically, the waiting Stevie's record steps on the waiting. That's right. That's unbelievable. That's bad luck. Think it was just it just the way that that's the way the cards went. I think the label got hungry. Yeah, wanted to have a hit. Yeah, and those days nobody gave a fuck. They hated the other labels. Yeah. You know what Tom I mean? Tom gave a fuck. Yeah, big time. And I felt responsible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, I always felt, because we were related. We were related. And, you know, as years went on, I always thought, you know, I should have protected him somehow. Yeah. But I didn't even know you could do that. No. And I, I, But yet, you know, it's like saying somebody's ahead of their time. I never want to hear that. I said, Jimmy, you were ahead of your time. No, I wasn't. I just didn't get it right. You know what I mean? I don't care that I had the idea before anybody else. I care that I didn't do it, you know? So I felt that I should have done something different to make the result come out different. Although when I go back- But it back, wasn't in your control. That's a part of it to- But I didn't, you know something, Rick? There was something I was when I was younger that I got under control. And I really have it under control as I get older. I was too hungry. Hmm. And- you make those kind of mistakes when you're too hungry. You just, you push it. Yeah. And you short, short sighted. Yeah. Short -sighted. And you, 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 you really, yeah, I felt, I, I felt I um, made a great record, but, um, but although the waiting is one of Tom's best songs, absolutely. But there was something about it that wasn't as commercial as refugee. Yeah. Do I know why? No, no. You never know. No. Never All I knew was I played it for somebody I really respected. Before it came out, I played it for Richard Perry. Yeah. And he said, this is not as big as the last album. Mm. I was devastated. Yeah. Because I wore the same jeans as the last album. <laughs> I fucking oh, you did. were You were uh, into stuff like that? To a point of psychosis. Wow. I just did every studio, same assistant, everything. Had to be exactly the same because I wanted it. The same results. Yeah. And you don't know what it is. Maybe yeah. it's the lucky pants. Right. It could be, right? Could be. Could you know? be anything. Could be anything. 
And that was something that you could control, the pants. That's exactly right. That's the beauty of it. It's like, if you know if I do everything that I could possibly do, it's certainly not going to hurt my That's right. And I felt he wrote the songs, which he did. Yes. But there's something about, I don't know, maybe you've done albums with somebody where the follow-up just didn't match up or something, and you felt you had it, but the world thought you didn't. Yeah. Also, sometimes it's the the where the artist is at. I had the experience with Tom. You know, I made great albums with Tom, and I made less great albums with Tom too, based on where he was at. And yeah, do you know? It's like I know not everyone is great all the time, forever. Yeah, and you don't stop. But the magic of a record is so fucking complex that no one gets it people use music as like chewing gum especially now yeah they they have no idea where it comes from how it comes you know if you made if you make classic movie people dissect it they don't dissect records they just take it okay next (laughs) you know and um i don't know i always that that kind of always felt like i learned a lesson there and uh and i became it was out of it was not in your control i i mean you feel bad and you wish there was something you could have done because hard promises were so important to me. Yeah. Did Tom call you or talk about it? What Tom said one day, which really got to me, he said, I'm on the road. And three months in, he says, they're asking me to sign them to Torpedoes. I mean, it sold millions of albums of and everything, course, but it course. didn't matter. The Waiting and Woman in Love weren't big hit records. Yeah. I remember going to the record store that I, the childhood record store that I went to called TSS, Times Square Store, which was a big box store that sold everything, but there was a record department. And that's the record, that was my record department growing up right. on Long Island where I went to buy records. And I remember seeing the cover of Damn the Torpedoes. Every time I went to the record store, it was always, there was this back wall where they put like the important records. Yeah. There were stacks of records everywhere, but on the back wall where you could see the covers, Damn the port- qu- Torpedoes was always Now we're getting to close again. I bought him that sport jacket. Wow. <laughs> wow, good look. It was, it was a, a great look. look, right? Yeah, worked out. It was a great look. <laughs> yeah. I think Hard Promises had a cool cover too. Yeah, 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 it was in a record store. You want to listen to a great Tom Petty record? I think I told you this was before. Play Rebels. It is an incredible, incredible record. Did you ever listen to Rebels? I'm sure I've listened because it has Southern accents on it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. You ever hear the, the Johnny Cash version of Southern Accents? Of course. Rick Rubin, I listened to every song you did with Johnny <laughs> Cash over the last two weeks. I just brought up fucking uh, Danny Boy. Yeah. Okay? I listen to every yeah. fucking song. I listen. To, I mean, my wife wants to kill me. It's always, she loves Johnny Cash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she just... You know, yeah, enough, enough's enough. Yeah, I just play it enough. constantly. And, those, and there's some of them are really sad. It's it's heavy. Like I, those albums can make me. I cry. think they have to go back and they should go back on the Grammys and give albums we missed. Wow, that's a good idea. I feel like the Grammys are obsolete. I know that, but Howard, what's his name, um, Harvey, he's trying to do better. Mm-hmm. They are obsolete. You know what I mean? Every album I just mentioned didn't win Gram, didn't yeah. win a Grammy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he all bought a run. Yeah. You know, them torpedoes. None of them got yeah. Belladonna. None of them, none of them got grand. Yeah, There's always a disconnect between what's popular and then what's critically, you know, like two, they're almost it's like two what's different. conventional wisdom. They yeah. want to go with what they know. Yeah. And if you're doing something a little yeah. ahead of the time. And the best ones is no point of reference. It's revolutionary. Right. 
and they don't understand it. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, Led Zeppelin IV didn't get album of the year. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> it's amazing, right? It's amazing. Yeah, how the fuck, you know, anything else? Yeah. You can stop right there. You think it's possible for people to care about music in the same way considering the fact that it's going by the way it's going by. Do you know what I'm saying? Like since the streaming revolution, our relationship to music has changed where even the things we love, there's still things on this conveyor belt that are going by all the time. Well, there's the problem. One of the big problems, I've done a lot of thinking about this because I had a streaming service, I had a record company, right? Yeah. And I study popular culture. Yeah. That's what I do. Yeah. I try to impact popular culture whenever I can or be part of something that's yeah. impacting popular culture. So what's happening now is kids have so much video games, right? There's so much shit, including themselves. Yeah. So not only do they have their schoolwork, but they're trying to get likes and looking mm -hmm. at their friends' likes. You can't do that while listening to music. Mm -hmm. So if you Not said while to, really listening to music the way we listen yeah. to music. So take a kid and you um, say, you know what? You miss your homework. I'm Tate. You're only allowed two apps. One of them's not a streaming music service. Yeah. YouTube, TikTok. Yeah. Music is fifth. It's not the thing. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, what happened, Rick, is that fame has replaced great as a currency when you were growing up great was the currency even if you were a pop band you were trying to be better than the other pop band now it's you want to be more famous and you want to because that you don't have to repeat great instagram is going to keep you around and keep you making money whether you make a great album for your second album or not you see it all the time there are artists out there that have just average albums after they come out and they're bigger. They get television shows, they get on these, you know, The Voice or this or that. It doesn't matter anymore because fame has replaced great, in my, in my opinion. No, it's interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's, a, it's a famous currency. It's, it's yeah. currency. That's the, that's the currency. Yeah. It used to be you had to be great to be famous yeah. or have a hit or something. Yeah. You don't have to have a hit to be famous. Not even a little bit. Not even, it's not, you don't even have to do anything, no. right? So that's when you ask me, the people go, so listen, I, I, I think the answer to that is unless someone figures out a hurricane way of reintroducing music, which somebody will, yeah. to make it, you know, hip hop's 50 years old. Yeah, unbelievable. You know what I mean? Hip hop is 50 years old. Right. So you need another something. Yeah. Right? Yeah, hip hop was the last big movement. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it was after punk. Yeah, it was after disco. Yeah, EDM never quite got as big as hip hop. No, no, it didn't change the way people dress. EDM, no. you know, punk changed that. You know, rock and roll and disco. Yeah. EDM, you know, no one. Yeah. That, I mean, it's popular. Amazing but. the impact disco had because it was a short window. It was only a couple of years of disco. Because it burned. But it was great. It burned. Yeah. It burned. Yeah, because it was got too big too fast. It, it was just, just got too burnt. much. And it's that same sound. It became it just everything. Burned. And it I just guess burned. maybe that could have happened to hip hop too, but hip hop keeps reinventing itself. Yeah. Oh, no, disco didn't. But, you know, guys like us go back and listen to Saturday Night Fever. That fucking album, 
That the Bee Gees, they unbelievable. were unbelievable. 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 What record makers? Unbelievable. And they were scorned. Yeah. They were scorned. Yeah, I interviewed Barry Gibb. It was great. Oh, I he bet. was so interesting. I bet. So cool. So smart. I bet. Yeah. You know, there's another guy who's really good, you know him well, is Jeff Lynn. Yeah, unbelievable talent. Unbelievable. I thought when I heard him put those uh, backing vocals on Free Fallen, yeah. it was one of those, why didn't I think of that moment? Yeah. You know, I said, oh, fuck, he put ELO's vocals on Tom Petty, and it yeah. worked. Yeah, and the songs were so good on I that album. I mixed Evil Every Woman. song. Every song on that album was great. The, yes. free, the album with Free Fallen. It's funny. Tom did his three best albums with three different producers. Yeah. Rock Flowers, Full Moon, was it Full Moon Fever? Yep. And Damn Torpedoes. Yeah. And in each case, it was the first album. Yeah. I always felt like when I worked with Tom the first time, he really wanted to show me how good he was. Yeah. And after that, I don't think he cared. He cared about making the best stuff he, you know, what he yeah. cared about making it as good as he could and doing what he wanted. But he didn't have that feeling like I want to impress this guy. Yeah. Well, we were we, we it was magic when we first got together. Yeah. But then, like anything else, I did three albums with. Him. I also did half of um, Southern Accents. Wow, great! It gave Thomas comeback. Don't come around here no more because yeah. he was kind of cold. Yeah. But it also messed up Southern Accents because Southern Accents was a theme album, but without Don't Come Around Here No More on it, it's not. He doesn't get on MTV. Yeah, that was like the step into the future. Yeah. It was programmed. It was yeah. it was different. It, it was, was Dave. Im, yeah, it was embracing. Because I got that song yeah. for Stevie. Wow. I went and got, I heard the rhythmics. I said, oh, fuck this. I went down to Dave's concert, the first play, play in LA. I brought him to Stevie's house. Yeah. And he played me that drum beat. Yeah. And he, and he just was singing himself, don't come around here no more. I said, holy shit. Yeah. Stevie Nicks singing, don't come around here no more. Great. That has to win. Yeah. So as Dave would say, she was starting to sing Shakespeare over the verses, right? So, so Dave says, it's not working. I said, let me tell you something. Tom will write the shit out of this. You got Tom back. Yeah. Tom got it back. Like that. So you got it amazing but no one ever mentions that including tom that's amazing right so it's funny no one no one knows this story so tom comes in and he's writing it and he goes you know i mean i'm gonna take this one i said great and stevie didn't care one way or the other yeah and tom got don't come around here no more and it completely re-energized tom's career yeah that's stevie singing background on it incredible Right? Those Incredible. are great stories, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, amazing. Amazing. And all stuff you can't plan, you can't, you no. know, it's like. No, because you got to be, you know, spontaneous. Record producers have to be spontaneous. Yeah. You know? How do you feel about producing records these days? You still enjoy it? It's fun. It's fun because it goes from something that either you don't know what it is or it's not so good, and you watch. I feel like I have no control over the situation. I'm not doing anything. But we're like playing and trying things. Let's try it like this. Let's try it like this. Let's try it like this. And then all of a sudden something happens and you can't believe it. How like that transformation of holy smokes. Yeah. I think I'm addicted to that experience of I can't believe this is as good as it is. I, the thing about 
producing is I'd have to go. I, I could never go in again, but I, I, I would have to do it with somebody that's making their best work. Yeah. It's hard to do that with somebody who's older. You know, the yeah. only, the per, you did it, Daniel and Wah with Bob Dylan. Yeah. That record, man. That record is awesome. Just awesome. There's one even after that, a couple after that, that I think Bob made himself called Modern Times. I thought, that's, I thought that is not the one that. No, that's not. That's post Daniel Dunois. Oh. Couple post. And I remember going to Petty's house. So I heard it and it blew my mind. And I was at a point where I wasn't necessarily thinking the new Dylan album is going to be the greatest thing because they weren't there, you know, they're hit and miss. And I went to Tom's house and I said, You got to hear this. When's the last time you saw Tom? Uh, saw him on the beach in Malibu probably a year before he passed and I was invited and planned on going to see him at the Hollywood Bowl which was one of his last shows maybe his last show I got a story about that show and I just felt like I don't really want to drive in Rick you're, 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 you're freaking me out same this is so weird for me I had the tickets. I had the people meeting me backstage. Yeah. I had everything. Yes. And it was six o'clock on a Sunday in Malibu. Yeah. And I said, I got to drive to the fucking Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And till today, I feel so shitty yeah. about not going. Yeah. I, I have a different opinion. I feel I'd like, like to get your opinion. So I'll, 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 I'll tell take you my, that. I feel like. We weren't supposed to see him that night. I That's guess what not. it is. We were I not guess. supposed to see him that night. And it worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. Because otherwise, we'd have been there. It really, then Stevie called me on the day it happened and just said, Come over here right away. I said, I heard he died. He said, How he, could it be? It just seems so out of the, like, far-fetched. Well, I mean, you knew him better in the later years than I did. I didn't see him that much, although he did do the Defiant Ones for me, which was really yeah. sweet, and he yeah. was great. And uh, but, and I went to see him when he was on, on the life support. Hmm. And um, it was weird, because I walk in there, I walk into, I think it was St. John's or, or UCLA in Santa Monica, and I Stevie's there, and I walk up, and I go and I look in this room and Tom's hooked up to the, the machine. And you know, you know the way that the machine breathes for you? Yeah. He was gone, they just hadn't unplugged him yet. Yeah. So I whispered something in his ear, you know, and uh, I walked outside and I saw Elliot Roberts and Tony Demetriadis and yeah. the band. And, yeah. and for the first time in my life, I said, so this is what it's gonna look like. Yeah. You know what I mean? You say, yeah. I know, just my friends will be here. Yeah, this is what happens to everybody. Yeah. This is how it goes. Yeah, I mean, but that's the night Tom Petty. That, that's what I was, um, I, if, let me tell you, it's very possible if there was a hospital in Malibu, he would have been able to go rather than getting those drugs wherever the fuck he got the fentanyl from. Yeah. He may have been able to just go there to an yeah. emergency room and yeah. say, my hip hurts. Yeah. He'd be alive today. What are you going to do, right? I mean, we got so much to talk about. I know. I love talking to you. It's a pleasure hearing you uh, 
share the wisdom of the life you know it's like no you know, one else could tell the story but you you know rick i'm this is where i am now five years ago i retired yeah right i retired because i couldn't work the way i worked and live the life i wanted to live yes. i wasn't able to do what you're doing yeah I'm going to work, but I'm going to go to Italy for three weeks. Yeah. If I was in Italy for three weeks, yeah. I was thinking about the fucking guitar part or yeah. whatever whatever today's guitar part was, the headphones, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the Apple music. We're yeah. going to win, lose, draw. But of course. So I had to quit. I wonder if I ever have the, if I could ever bring myself to that. It's interesting. It's inspirational. I did it at 65. To hear it, yeah. And I'll tell you what. Yeah. I think you could feel it in me. I'm a different carcadian rhythm <laughs> yeah i'm a different i'm in a different space yeah. I, I i feel it this is the most relaxed conversation i've ever had yeah. with you i just feel i just feel great and yeah. i do things of course i help my wife with of her course. roller skating rinks and of course i help jamie with network i help my kids i'm of building course. high schools with dre and i do you a do lot it of interests you but you don't feel like you're on the hook the hook it yeah. the word yeah. the hook isn't in my mouth great that's the feeling. I understand. <laughs> no, I know the feeling. And there's always somebody on the, and you know what? I don't want to have to convince people of anything anymore. Yeah. I don't want to have to convince people on giant deals yeah. or making the tambourine a little louder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to convince anybody yeah. of anything. Yeah. If you want to play, we could play. Yeah. Ever since I retired, my medical numbers have gone through the roof. Great. I feel relaxed. Great. Me and my wife are doing great. Great. And my kids, I just, look, I'm going to be 70. I'm, I'm retired five years. Fantastic. I don't miss one. Fuck. But by the way, I told, Bruce asked me when I was retired, he said, how can we going to retire? I said, look, man, I just left Italy with you. I went to Milan, 80,000 people yelling Bruce. Yeah. If they were yelling Jimmy, I wouldn't retire either. Yeah, it's different. I talk to scumbags all day. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah, I understand that. I don't want to do, do it. I understand that. That's a big subject for our next talk about the people you have to deal with. Yeah. I love this, Rick. I love sitting and it's talking. It's fun, right? Oh, my God. It's fun. It's I think fun. it's help. It's like, it's posterity. Well, first of all. This is lost information. No one knows. Is. Well, you know, you're correcting. Uh, you're like, uh,